The first scripture reading this morning is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, and we'll be reading from verse 11 to 31. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be upon us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Our second Bible reading for today will just be following on from where Ian was, so Matthew 27, verse 32, to the end of the chapter. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, 
You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests, with the scribes and elders, mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that impostor said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers? Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Well, good morning. Wonderful to see you here all this morning. For those uh, visitors here, my name is Nathan, and I have the privilege of sharing uh, from God's Word. It's always good to hear God's Word read, isn't it? As we've uh, pondered, from Matthew's perspective, uh, the crucifixion. Let's uh, pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new day. Father, we thank you for the celebration that will occur around this world as we 
consider the cross, as we consider the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. Father, we pray this morning that uh, you will open our hearts, you will refresh our spirits, you will give us a sense of the awe and majesty of your amazing love uh, towards humanity. We pray as we open your word together this morning that indeed it will bring life and life to the full. These things we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. The following has been said about the impact of the crucifixion of uh, Jesus. This is what has been said. The cross is the hinge upon the door of history. It is the hub that holds the spokes of God's purposes in a grand unity. The Old Testament prophets point towards it, and the New Testament apostles proclaim it. Let me just read that again for you, because I think it's a, it's a beautifully deep and rich statement. The cross is the hinge upon which the door of history swings. It is the hub that holds the spokes of God's purposes and grand unity. You see, according to this quote by Erwin Lutzke, all history is defined by this event that we celebrate today. All of history is defined by the cross and Jesus' death on that cross. Not only that, all of God's purposes for mankind are defined and centered on this historical event. And this is the exclusive claim of Christianity. You see, ultimately the world is divided around this event. The world's not divided geographically or racially or economically. Nor can we sort of draw a line that separates relatively good people from relatively bad people. You see, all races, all nations, all cultures, whether you like it or not, are divided by the cross of Christ. On one side, there are those who believe. On the other side, there are, are those who choose to justify themselves and are determined to stand before God on their own merits. And I guess this morning as we consider the cross, and for many of you this is not the first time that you've considered the cross. But I want you to consider afresh this morning, where do you stand in relation to the claims of Christ? Do you believe the claims of Christ? Do you believe that his death on the cross was a history-making event that was part of God's plan to provide salvation? Do you believe that his death on the cross was for you? 
Do you believe that his death has the power to remove sin and the eternal consequences of your sin? You see, the cross will always polarize people. Polarizes nations, it polarizes people. It will always polarize people into two groups. Belief that leads to salvation or unbelief that leads to separation from God for eternity. So where do you stand in that? Where do you stand on these issues? This morning I want to be very clear. You need to examine your life based on the claims of Christ, based on the work that he has done on the cross. This morning we have read this wonderful portion from Matthew. Thanks Ian and Beth for reading that. And we've, we've heard some of the aspects of the crucifixion of Christ. You see, in our Bibles, in our Bible, we have four accounts of his crucifixion. We've only read one of them this morning. And all four accounts give different perspectives. And as you combine these different perspectives, you get a wonderful, rich story of what Christ went through on that cross. See, in the account we read from Matthew this morning, we see that Jesus was before Pilate a couple of times. We see the crowd condemning him, crying out to him to be crucified. Give us Barabbas, give us a murderer. We don't want that man. Crucify him. We see the the mocking of Jesus by the soldiers of Pilate. You know, they grabbed a scarlet robe, placed it on him, mocked him as king. They wove a crown of thorns and embedded it into his head and smashed it into his head, spitting on him, shouting abuse and disdain towards him. Didn't stop with the soldiers of Jesus. The crowd gathered around the cross also, mocked, incited by the chief priests and the religious leaders of the day and all the elders, they stood around and said, oh, let's, you, you said you could save yourself now. Come down off the cross and save yourself. You've saved others, but save yourself. Pretty confronting type of imagery, isn't it? And as we reflect on the cross of Christ today, what I want to particularly do is look at what Jesus said from the cross very briefly. Because when we see Jesus speaking from the cross, we, we see his heart towards all. We see that his cries reveal the deepest longings of his heart. And we will see that his final act of selfless suffering is for the redemption of sinners. In Matthew, we read one of the the first 
but not in chronological order, but Matthew, we came across one of the sayings of Jesus on the cross. And it was a cry of anguish in Matthew 27, 46. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was one of Jesus' cries from the cross. There are seven in total. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 23. And we'll just briefly look at three other cries from the cross. Luke 23, 34. Jesus is nailed. He is, he is crucified to this cross. And he says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What an outstanding statement from Jesus as he is hanging, as the nails have been pierced through his hands and through his feet. He looks upon the crowd. He looks upon his murderers. And he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's a cry of pardon, one of the most significant cries that we can ever see from Christ's lips. In verse 43, after a dialogue with one of the thieves, which we we will return to this morning, we see Jesus affirming to this thief, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is a wonderful cry of assurance to this, this man, this criminal who did not know Christ until the point in time that he was hanging next to him on a criminal's cross. And he placed his faith in Christ and asked him to be remembered when Jesus came into paradise. And Jesus gives this wonderful cry of assurance. You will be with me in paradise. It's an emphatic statement. In Luke uh, 23, 46, we see a cry of submission. As Jesus nears his death, he cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So in Luke, we have three cries, a cry of pardon, a cry of assurance, and a cry of submission. As we read in Matthew, we have the cry of anguish. If you move over to John chapter 19, you see three more cries of what Jesus said on the cross. John 19 verses 26 and 27, there's this dialogue going on between Jesus and those who are at the foot of the cross and Jesus turns to his mother, his earthly mother, And the disciple whom he loved, which we assume is John, and he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. This is a real cry of compassion. Jesus knew that his suffering was deeply affecting those whom he loved. And he was crying a cry of compassion towards them. And in verse 28, 
we see Jesus knowing that things were about to be finished, knowing that his death was imminent, cried out, I thirst. It's a cry of suffering. And then finally in verse 30, he cries out a cry of victory. It is finished. So there are the seven sayings of Christ on the cross, wonderful sayings. A cry of anguish, a cry of pardon, a cry of assurance, a cry of submission, a cry of compassion, a cry of suffering, and a cry of victory. This morning I particularly want to look at this cry of assurance as we found in Luke chapter 23. I said it relates to the dialogue between Jesus and the thieves that were crucified with him. You see, these thieves had the initial reaction to Jesus just like the rest of the crowd, right? We read that in Matthew. They reviled him. They mocked him. They said, you said you could save us now, save us. So both criminals were standing there mocking. They were mocking his claim about being the son of God. They were mocking his claim about being the saviour. But then we see this wonderful interaction between Jesus and one of the thieves. In Luke chapter 23, 32 to 43. Let's just read that briefly together. Luke 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals on his right and on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged rallied at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So we don't know a lot about this criminal. Well, clearly he was sentenced to death for his crimes. But actually he was part of a prophetic fulfillment that is written about in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 verse 12 tells us that uh, Christ, the suffering servant, would be willingly submitted to death and was numbered with the rebels. Isaiah 53 tells us that Christ would be crucified amongst rebels and criminals. 
You see, for this criminal who was hanging next to Jesus, for both of them actually, it was too late for a new beginning. Too late for hoping that his good deeds would outweigh his bad. You know, he couldn't walk in the pathway that was right because he had nails through both feet. He could not perform any good works for there was nails through each of his hands. He didn't have time to turn over a new leaf and live a better life. Why? Because he was dying. See, his plight is like every one of us. We are totally helpless when it comes to saving ourselves. Because we are all born and separated from God, our Creator. We were born sinners, just like the thieves on the cross. Our good works will never save us. Our good intentions will not save us. Our morality and our righteous living will not save us. Only Christ can save. Only through the death, burial and resurrection of the Lord of the universe, through the regenerating work of the Spirit of God, can you be saved. So we can only sort of surmise why this criminal changed his mind. Uh, One thing is incredibly for certain, it was part of God's plan. But, you know, we don't know why he turned. But in many ways... This believer, because he is a believer, he was going to be with Christ in paradise. He had this assurance cry from Christ. He is a believer. His testimony to all that a human being at any time, at any point in his life, can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You know, maybe it was because the thief heard the words of Jesus. Father, forgive them for they know what they do. Maybe that pierced his heart and got him thinking about who was next to him. Maybe the inadvertent testimony of the crowd who were, who were mocking him. See, even in their mocking and contempt, they were stating truth. He had saved others was their cry. So maybe that turned the thief's heart. Maybe it was the inscription above Jesus' cross. This is the king of the Jews. You see, it was really customary to write the crime of the crucified men above the cross. What's the crime here? He's the king of the Jews. It's no crime. Must have made the thief wonder, well, who is actually hanging here with me? Who is dying this criminal's death with me and why? But whatever the cause might have been in his heart, or in his mind, whatever the course is now that God has moved him from death to life. This man now believed and placed 
and pleaded to Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom. You see, whatever the cause, he knew he was a sinner. And he knew that that was an issue. And sin's an issue for each one of us. David Wells writes this about sin, and I think it's a really nice definition. Sin, biblically speaking, is not only the absence of good, it also entails our active opposition to God. So it's not just the absence of good, it's actually active opposition towards God. That's what sin is. When we say to God, we're on our own, we don't need you, we are actively opposed to your goodness. It is the defiance of his authority, the rejection of truth, the challenge to his sovereignty in which we set ourselves up to live the way we want to live. That is sin. It's the way we wrench ourselves free from the obedience to him, cut ourselves off from his grasp, and refuse to let him be God. Sin, therefore, is all the ways we live life on our own terms, to our own ends, with accountability to no one but ourselves. I think in some way the thief realized that. And by faith he realized that Christ, the one hanging next to him, could pay for his sin, could be the sin bearer. Christ in this sacrifice was bearing the sin of the thief. It's just really interesting. The thief believed before darkness came across the land, before the earthquake, before the veil was, was torn in two. He believed without the, the, uh, the evidence of the resurrection and ascension. He believed without seeing Jesus walking on the water or feeding the multitudes or turning water into wine. And probable as it was, he believed. Because God made him alive. God awakened his dead heart and made him alive. Let's just think about it for a moment. What a reunion it was going to be. Today you will be with me in paradise. In a few hours' time, Jesus and the thief would be reunited. It's obvious that Jesus died before the thief because in the very next part of the passage we see him saying, it is finished. It's amazing Jesus would be on hand to welcome him into his eternal home. Spurgeon wrote this wonderful thing. This man, who was our Lord's last companion on earth, was his first companion at the gates of paradise. What had this man done to deserve that? Nothing. Purely an act of God's grace. Thief was with him in condemnation, and hours later, he was with Jesus in salvation. What a wonderful transformation. 
And you and I can experience that. We can experience the release and freedom from sin when we place our faith and trust in Christ. You see, Jesus was hanging in apparent helplessness here from a human perspective. But he still controlled the gates of paradise. He had the power to act for the repentant and the power to judge the guilty. You see, Jesus' death on the cross gives life. His death atones for sin once and for all. And that's just a wonderful, wonderful thing to think about. Atonement for sin is absolutely necessary for it's the only way of reinstating our relationship with God. And Christ did it all on the cross. That's why we celebrate this Good Friday, because our sin has been atoned for. We have been redeemed, we have been reconciled, we have been justified, we have been propitiated. All those are big words. What it means is that God has given us all. Through Christ's blood, it covers our sin. And Christ's sacrifice and his atonement is imputed, it's credited to us when we place our faith and trust in him. See, the result of this atonement, First Peter tells us, is this. For he himself bore our sin on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Christ's atonement, his, his death on the cross is what atones for our sin. First Peter quotes once again from Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5 and 6, where it says, As the sheep, as the lamb, atones for sin and our wounds are healed. Some have objected, objected that this is not fair for God to do this, to transfer the guilt of sin from us to an innocent person. Yet it must be remembered, Christ did this voluntarily. He took it on himself. And that's grace. That's grace. As darkness shrouded Jerusalem, reflecting the unimaginable spiritual agony Jesus endured as a sin bearer, when he cried from the cross, it is finished, drawing his final breath, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Instantly a deafening, rippling sound filled the temple court. The veil that separated humankind from the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom. As the temple veil was torn in two, the centuries of sacrifices, burnt offerings wafting their pleasing aroma heavenward, found ultimate and complete fulfillment in the flawless sacrifice of Jesus. God the Father accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf so that sin would lose its ultimate power over us. Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and rose on the third day, which we will celebrate on Sunday, and boy, will we celebrate. His purpose was to provide you and I reconciliation and redemption. God's wrath could only be satisfied by the perfect sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Salvation can only be accomplished through the one act of this immeasurable grace through Christ. 
So this morning, where do you stand in relation to the cross? Do you believe the claims of Christ? Do you believe that your sin has been paid for? Do you believe that his death on the cross was for you? Do you believe that his death has the power to remove your sin and the eternal consequences of your sin? If you believe that, it leads to salvation. If you do not, you are separated from God. So what's your choice? We're now going to sing a wonderful song together so if the musicians can come up. It's a wonderful anthem of praise. It's a song that's written by Isaac Watts in the 17th century. So slightly older than 99 years. It says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. See, from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ere such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small? This is the point. Love so amazing, so so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. What is your choice today in relation to the cross of Christ? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we have contemplated the cross this morning, we thank you. We thank you for the amazing and divine love shown through the death of Christ. We thank you for the exclusive claim of the cross. It's only through belief in the the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus that we have life. Father, we pray that your spirit this morning will do a work amongst us. We'll refresh our hearts with the truths that we've discussed. And Father, maybe for the first time, our hearts will cry out in repentance and belief in Jesus, our risen Savior. This we pray now in the powerful name of Christ our Lord.